Sometimes, Michael, daily life feels like a chapter out of a terrible novel. The villains are overwritten. There's not an ounce of nuance to be found. The good guys are there, but they're only rendered in 2D. And all of our favorites seem to be dying. Maybe it's time to immerse ourselves in worlds where at least plot and characters still survive as an art form. Let's pick up some actual fiction. Book of the Month Club specializes in just that. Plots and characters that are as fantastical, twisted, unbelievable, raw, and horrible as the ones in the newspapers. But at least they're better written. Because spending time in a terrible place that's in a well-written book can actually make us feel pretty good. Funny how that works. Learn how it all works at bookofthemonth.com. Happy Saturday. It's October 7th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City. And Michael, it seems like New York is the place to be. We had an epic airmail party on Tuesday night to celebrate the new Adam Nagorny book about the New York Times at the Waverly Inn. Everybody who's anybody was there, at least everybody who's anybody in media. No scandalous characters, right? It's really quite a happening thing going on. It's quite a happening thing, but it's fall. It's the season. It's back. I'm sure it's the same way in London, but we miss you here. That's all I want to say. I miss you too. We don't do book parties in London, or at least if they're happening, I'm not getting invited to them, unfortunately. No, I think Graydon is sort of the last torch holder of this particular art. We should have more of them, frankly. It's great for publishing and great for entertainment. Just like airmail, great for publishing, great for entertainment. And we've got a great show this week. It's been a lot of great stories and great guests. It's been 11 months now since four University of Idaho students were brutally stabbed to death in the middle of the night. The trial of the alleged killer, Brian Koberger, has initially decided to start this week, but has been postponed indefinitely. But Howard Bloom who has been following this case for airmail, has a riveting story about how a grieving father of one of the victims has termed amateur sleuth and made a surprising discovery. He'll tell us all about that. Then, speaking of discoveries, have you heard about the town that some people say is like a twilight zone where horses are gods? Nancy Jo Sales is going to join us with a report from Wellington, Florida, the once sleepy little horse town near Palm Beach, where new money real estate developers are duking it out with the old guard horse set that calls it home. And finally, the always wonderful Linda Wells is going to stop by to tell us all about what's new in the world of beauty and style and in the latest issue of Airmail Look. Ashley, where would you like to begin today? Let's start with sexting, fasting, all topics of interest in the universe of Airmail Look. We've got Linda Wells here, who's the editor of Airmail Look, our monthly beauty and wellness-centric magazine. We've got a new issue out, just came out yesterday, in fact, and we have lots to talk about in a couple important stories that truly you mustn't miss, especially if you're in the habit of sending nude photos to your friends, family, and loved ones. What? 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 You don't do this? Come on. You're the only one, Michael. Welcome, Linda Wells. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So, Linda, there's so much good stuff to discuss in the new issue of Airmail Look, but we have to first start with your column, The Look From Here, which is all about juvenilia. Is that even a word? Which is all about the most unlikely market for the users of luxury skincare. Who are these people? They're 11-year-olds. And some of them are even 15, but they are so sophisticated. They use so much high-end skincare and it's daunting. So I spoke with an 11-year-old who's been working with her skincare products for a year and she likes Drunk Elephant. And then I talked to another girl who is 12 who does a pre-cleansing routine. And this is a really hot demographic for skincare. And they're buying Drunk Elephant, Bubble, Glow Recipe, The packaging is kind of toy-like and colorful, and they like doing it because they watch a lot of TikTok, of 
course, and they see these get ready with me videos. So they make those videos in their bathroom, but they're not, most of the parents don't allow them to post them or even follow TikTok. So it's this kind of routine that they love and they're more hydrated than anyone I've ever met. One of them uses an eye cream that costs $145. That was something. I mean, I guess this is obvious, but are their parents paying for this? Like, I can't imagine that they're earning enough money working at Starbucks to be able to buy drunk elephants. Starbucks? That's babysitting money. You can't be working at Starbucks if you're 12. What do you, I know you're over there in Dickensian in London, but that's not happening here. <laughs> oh my God. I asked the same question, like, where are you getting the money? And one girl said, my allowance. And I was like, oh yeah, I forgot about allowance. And they get a lot of it for birthday presents. So the, a lot of that happens of them exchanging a birthday presents. A lot of the experimentation happens at sleepovers. Their parents do buy them some of these products. And I even spoke with some of the parents who were very supportive and very enthusiastic about it and felt like as things go, this is a healthy thing to do. I spoke with a dermatologist, Amy Wexler, who said, they're learning good habits. And as long as they're applying sunscreen and they're not using products that are inappropriate for their skin, she's all for it. Linda, let's go back to that. They're learning good habits or they're learning how to be good consumers? Well, I mean, that's the problem. I think this sort of brings them very early into this consumer culture and the beauty culture, which is it's not the most positive place for everyone. And I think that they're trying to change this. The beauty business is trying to change it, but it's a fraught proposition. Okay, well, more to read on that in the new issue of Airmail Look. Now, let's move on to something more scintillating. Scintillating? What's wrong with that? Well, I mean, we're going to go straight from the tweens to the nudes, okay? We have a writer named Lauren Bands, who is certainly of age, by the way, who writes about where she sends her nude photos. I love this story so much. I love this story. It is so funny. So she and her friends decided that maybe men were not the best recipients for their nudes and they're in heterosexual relationships, but because their responses to the nudes were incredibly lukewarm. And so one example I thought was so funny was a woman took a picture of herself sitting on her bed wearing a very sexy bikini and she texted it to her husband who replied, that's how I feel too, exhausted. <laughs> it was like, oh, okay, guess what? You can't get these pictures anymore. So these women started sending these pictures to each other and the response that they give each other is just so uplifting and so positive and so original. And so essentially what they've done is cut out the middleman and the middleman is the man in the middle of their bed. So good. Okay, we also have a really fascinating story speaking of men about fasting, intermittent fasting, the trend behind that, and also this notion of fasting for health. Well, yes, I mean, this is, we know that this is a big trend, intermittent fasting, and we know about it from Jack Dorsey and Brian Johnson and all these tech moguls who believe that it's a part of their longevity program. And there is research that says that calories restriction is good for longevity, but taking this concept and then branding it with things like the master cleanse or all these various juice cleanse. And now there's kind of a fasting adjacent program called Prolon. And what you do is you pay, I think, $170 and you do this fast for five days and you get this box and in it contains all of your food. Obviously, none of it's fresh because it comes in a box and everything's in a foil packet and it looks like COVID tests. And he kind of subsisted on very depressing powdered soups and nuts and a couple of olives olives for five days and he basically sounded like he was in hell. But then once he emerged, he was completely converted and felt like a new man. So I think that we know that this is a huge trend. And the issue really is, is it really just another way of disguising disordered eating? Can I just say something? Sure. Just as the man here, maybe that guy who got the photograph of the friend wearing a bikini on the bed, who said he was exhausted. Maybe he was just fasting. Right. But his vision might have been affected in the whole process, too, for all we know. Exactly. All right, back to you, ladies. Yeah. 
I think you're right. And I think that a lot of these men are doing it and they're doing it in the belief that it's going to make them live forever. And we shall see. I will just say I've done it one and a half times. The first time I felt like I was completely invincible. And the second time I was ready to kill everyone I encountered. And I promptly went out to Shake Shack and got a cheeseburger and felt loads better. I'd like to write a story for you about accidental fasting. <laughs> I've never heard of such a thing in my life, but sure. That's just like when you don't have any food in the house and you just end up like not eating for a day and then you just sort of like keep going. This is not in my wheelhouse whatsoever. Never in my life missed me. Back to you. I'll be quiet over here. <laughs> no, no, no. And I've gone on those fasts too, like Ashley, the juice blueprint cleanse. And I went through all those things. And the problem is all you do is think about food. You're freezing cold. You go to bed at eight o'clock because what's the point of staying up? And so your life is completely not worth living in many ways. And then the minute you start eating, you gain the weight back and some. So I'm not a personal fan. No, definitely not. But what does Jolene Edgar look at in this issue? So Jolene Edgar is our expert plastic surgery reporter, and she writes about the whole concept of botched surgery. Now that word will get every single doctor running for the hills because they say it's litigious, it's insulting. So they get very sensitive about and defensive about the word botched. But we know in sort of popular parlance, that's the word we all use for messed up plastic surgery. And we've all seen it. But the real sort of fact is that there's been an increase in revision surgeries. So some doctor revises someone else's surgery of 61 and a half percent from 2019 to 2022. So these things are on the rise. And I think part of it has to do with people getting more surgery, period. People's expectations based on social media of these afters that are just unrealistic and probably not accurate. And then doctors who do too little and doctors who do too much. And we all know what too much looks like. And it's that stretch taut kind of joker mouth. And then there are a lot of nose surgeries. Nose surgeries are the ones that really suffer the most because the nose is a very difficult and fragile part of the face. And so we know, for example, Michael Jackson presumably had, according to one reporter, something like nine different nose surgeries and the nose keeps collapsing. So this is something that's happening. It's been increased by unrealistic expectations and doctors are very sort of skittish about the whole thing. Okay, Linda, before we go, we have to talk about what to buy and where to buy it. Tell us all about the shopping element of this issue. Yes, we did something in this issue. We picked our very favorite products of all time. Let's just make it big and make it all time. And so we are product junkies. I mean, I know in my case, I've been trying beauty products for, I don't even want to tell you how long. I mean, it's been many, many, many decades. And we try things like a different mascara on each eye and a different foundation on each side of the face. And so we end up looking like a Picasso Cubist portrait, but we do it for the betterment of our look readers. So we picked our favorite products and I think they're about 26 in all. And we've got a mascara and a foundation and some fragrances and a variety of things that we hope make shopping easier for our readers. I think your guys' motto should be, we look great so you can too. <laughs> I don't feel it. I can stand behind that, but thank you, Michael. Any products for the guys there? Oh yeah. I mean, there's a great skincare stuff. There are a lot of great things there. A lot of good skincare. Seasons are changing. My skin's going to start drying out. Better move fast. Take a look at the issue. We've got some things for chapped lips and dry skin and everything you want. Wonderful. Thank you both. 
Well, that was good. Linda, you crushing it with the airmail look. We have a lot of fun. What can I say? This is the candy of the internet, Michael. <laughs> well, speaking of candy and interesting places and fresh looks, Nancy Jo Sales has a pretty eye-opening story on one of those strange little places that you don't know about if you don't have tens of millions of dollars, if you're not Michael Bloomberg or Bruce Springsteen or Bill Gates, who all have houses down in a little place called Wellington, Florida. Wellington, Florida. Somewhere I've never been and frankly have no hopes of ever going. The last time we talked to Nancy Jo Sales, we were talking to her about incels. Fortunately, this is somewhat less scandalous or maybe not, actually. Nancy Jo is a journalist whose 2010 article for Vanity Fair, The Suspects Wore Louboutins, inspired the film The Bling Ring. She is also the author of American Girls, Social Media and the Secret Lives of Teenagers, as well as Nothing Personal, My Secret Life in the Dating App Inferno. Welcome, Nancy Jo. Uh, okay, so Nancy Jo, first of all, where is Wellington, Florida and who goes there? Wellington, Florida is a town of about 60,000 people to almost due west of Palm Beach, Florida. And it is 60,000 people. It's not a small community, but it is mainly known for having the horse show, the Winter Equestrian Festival, which has made Wellington known as the Winter equestrian capital of the world. It's a very, very big deal in the horse show circuit. Okay, but now, clearly, there's some controversy. Trouble has come to paradise, right? Yes. This isn't the first time that Wellington has had controversy surrounding a local rich guy, developer, entrepreneur, horse equestrian industry guy named Mark Alissimo. He has in the past tried to build a hotel in the town, which they didn't like, and there was a big fight against it, and it actually never happened. And now he, with some partners, wants to build a gigantic community, like a sort of town within a town almost, with hundreds of houses and another hotel he's proposing, and 24 shops for swimming pools, 12 pickleball courts, squash courts, tennis courts, and a golf course. And the residents of Wellington, who tend to be horse people who want to ride their horses and engage in the sport and have this kind of more what you call it community that has this horse world culture, they are very much against it. And they have mounted this strenuous opposition to it. And there's a big vote coming up on October 10th. Actually, it could happen any time between the 10th and the 12th for the village council to vote on whether or not they're going to allow this development to go forward. And the reason why they have to vote on it is because what the developers and Mr. Bellissimo are proposing is that land for this development come out of an area called the Equestrian Preserve, which is a kind of big bucolic space. It's privately owned, actually, but they have in their town bylaws these zoning laws protecting it. You're not allowed to build up to a certain density on it. It is showgrounds, it's farms, it's horse people doing horse people things. It's green and it's also wetlands. So that's what the fight is over. I mean, to pull back, you give such a great reporting this week. Rich people are crazy enough. Rich people with horses get really crazy, right? And this town, as you need, goes back about 100 years. It's always been kind of quiet. Prince Charles and Princess Diana once hung out there. You said once you went down there and your impression was, quote, it's like a twilight zone where horses are gods. Yeah. Well, I'll never forget seeing the horses on their bridles. They have these gold, like solid gold kind of tags for their names. 
I'll say like Winnie in Solid Bulk. And then there's a lot of young women who are really, some of them very highly competitive athletes and some are from very well-known families. There's Georgina Bloomberg, who's a really accomplished equestrian. And there's a whole lot of people like that down there. So it's this kind of rarefied community, very rarefied atmosphere where it's really like a horse culture. It's sort of at odds with the rest of Florida where I'm from. I was born in West Palm Beach, actually. And the rest of Florida is... There's a lot of malls and strip malls and Florida man. And there are some affluent communities, it's true. But Wellington really rivals Palm Beach in its fanciness and plus horses. So how's this going to play out? Because as you note in your reporting as well, like, I mean, he's already a really rich guy, Bellissimo, right? Bellissimo, yeah. And this could actually make him more wealthy if he gets this approved, right? Well, yes. I mean, this development, which his group, which is Wellington Lifestyle Partners, which is together with the Nexus Lifestyle Partners, and they're just this gigantic development firm. They're owned by Tavistock, big investment firm. And they've done the Albany Resort in the Bahamas, where it's actually where Sam Bankman-Fried lived and was arrested. That's not their fault. But I believe Justin Timberlake is an investor in Nexus and Tiger Woods. So it's very Tony stuff. It's very high money stuff. And it's very the kind of resorts that remind me almost of like I hope they're not offended by this, but it's almost like Disneylandish, Epcotish, like an Epcot Center feel where everything is provided for and you're just there and you want to go to the pool, here it is. You want to shop at Hermes, there it is, right there. And there's going to be a quote unquote charming walkway and all this stuff. But that's really not Wellington. That's not Wellington horse culture, which is like you say, older. It's in the 1970s and 80s with Prince Charles coming to play polo. Polo was really the way it all got started there. This businessman from Chicago came down and started the polo. And so it attracted all of these people at the time that were celebrities and Joan Collins and Estee Lauder. You can see them in the polo club that was there then. So this to the residents who feel that they are part of that tradition, they do not like this idea of this big, very different sort of, they're calling it almost like a town within a town moving in and changing their world. Plus, I mean, there are some other considerations besides just the kind of look of it and the culture of it. It will bring in a lot of people. It will bring in a lot of traffic. It's a threat to the wetlands. That's according to one report that was commissioned by what is known as the opposition. And the opposition are the people who do not want this development. And they have a motto, horses, not houses. Exclamation point. Well, yeah, the exclamation point makes it really powerful. (laughs) No, I added the exclamation point. But they have websites, they have petitions, they write letters to the Palm Beach Post. There's a quote in the story where someone says, people seem to think that he's interested in making money. And that while there's nothing wrong with making money, it would be to to their minds at the expense of their very insular horse world where they do things a certain way. It's, I love that he's newish, bigger money coming against older, probably smaller money. <laughs> well, we don't know because... Bellissimo, he rarely gives interviews, given very few. He doesn't really talk to reporters. He doesn't publish things like that. Like, we don't know for it's speculated that he's a billionaire, but we don't know that for sure. There's also speculation that he's doing this because he needs money. I mean, there's all kinds of speculation about him. And he's this imposing figure. He's very tall and he kind of looks like Lord Grantham on Downton Abbey. And he did appear one time about this issue in the beginning of it as a controversy in September of 2022. And he appeared before one of the boards, the Planning Zoning Adjustments Board or something. And he's there and he is 
presenting to them his idea for this wonderful thing. And he presented it in a way that kind of ruffled the feathers of a lot of people in the community because the way he presented it was, well, there's Wellington 1.0, 2.0, and 3.0. And 1.0 was when you had the 70s and Polo and the 80s and Prince Charles and all that. 2.0 was when I came in and I built up the horse show and made it such a big deal and commercialized everything. And well, he didn't say commercialized, but that's kind of what he did. And then 3.0 will be when we build my wonderful new golf community and bring Wellington into its next phase. And this is why you need to do this. And I think people felt, took some umbrage at the fact that he was describing the history of their town and these phases in which he played such a central role in forming its identity. Well, it's a fascinating story, Nancy Joe, and one that I'm sure we will be continuing to talk about as it unfolds. So thank you so much for your great reporting and your analysis here. Thank you. Thanks so much, Nancy Joe. Kind of you to have me. Bye-bye. Bye. Sometimes daily life feels like a chapter out of a terrible novel. The villains are overwritten, there's not an ounce of nuance to be found, the good guys are there, but they're only rendered in 2D. And all of our favorites seem to be dying. Well, maybe it's time to immerse ourselves in worlds where at least plot and character still survive as an art form. Let's pick up some actual fiction. Book of the Month Club specializes in just that. Plots and characters that are as fantastical, twisted, unbelievable, raw, and horrible as the ones in the newspapers. But at least they're better written. Because spending time in a terrible place that's in a well-written book can actually make us feel pretty good. Funny how that works. Learn how it all works at bookofthemonth.com. It's like just when you think Florida is as bad as it gets. No, it turns out there's even more insidiousness there. Even more insidiousness. Bad behavior, nothing like it in money and horses. It's a good mix. Makes for a good story. All right. Well, we're going to go from rich people behaving badly to just people behaving very, very abominably. We've got Howard Bloom here, who's a writer at large for Airmill. He's been covering the trial of the alleged Idaho killer, Brian Koberger, for us. All right, Howard, welcome to the show. Nice to speak with you again. Okay, you've got another firecracker of an installment this week about what's happening out in Idaho with the murder. Tell us a little bit about, I mean, this is a story really about what happens to a father with his grief and where he puts it. So tell us a little bit about the father, Steve Gonclavis. At the heart of this entire tragic story are families. And you think about how families try to deal with the loss of a child. And I discuss how a couple of the families try to deal with it. For example, Zana's father just has this sort of stoic resignation. The Chapins set up a benevolent charity and try to make the best of it. But Kaylee's father, Steve Gonclavis, does not want to surrender to events. He wants to be a detective, in effect. He wants to help the police crack the case. And even more than that, he believes in his heart that the police haven't been doing enough. So he's been going off on his own with his older daughter's help, Olivia, and they've been trying to put pieces of the case together. And in the course of doing this, they've uncovered some fantastic information. So tell us about that fantastic information. It truly is startling. And he's uncovered several things. First, he's found that the police have a receipt of Koberger buying a Dickies work suit, which is a work suit that covers you from your neck to your legs and your arms. And the police are now hypothecating that Hoberger wore this work suit, this Dickies work suit, which he bought for $49.99 at a Walmart in Pullman, Washington. He wore this during the killings. And then afterwards, he took it off, threw it into his trunk, perhaps in a garbage bag. And that's why there was no blood in his apartment or in his car. And again, the police have this receipt. And then 
Steve's investigation has also found out some more evidence. He's, since the beginning of this case, one of the great mysteries is and has been two roommates survived. One of them, according to a police affidavit, saw the killer walk through the house. She stares at him and then she goes back to her room. And for the next eight hours, nothing happened. Well, according to what Kaylee's father has found, there has been evidence presented to the grand jury that says that these two roommates during the course of this murder were texting to one another. And that at one point, they even sent a text saying, oh my gosh, I think someone's being killed. And if this is accurate, because again, this is what Steve has found at the grand jury, if it's accurate, it raises a really troubling question. They knew that something was happening in the house. If they suspected that someone was being murdered, why did they wait eight hours before informing the police? That is one of the great mysteries of this story and one that Steve is trying to find. And Steve has also discovered something else. He's found that the prosecution and the authorities are sitting on a witness. What this witness knows, what this witness has seen remains a large mystery. Steve set out to try to talk to this witness to discover this for himself. He really is determined to get the bottom of the things. And then something totally strange happens. The FBI sends a letter to his lawyer, who Shannon Gray, Steve Gonclavis's lawyer, saying that, back off, this witness came to us under a edict on a tip line saying that we would protect his confidentiality. And if you try to contact him, if, if you in any way reveal his identity, then you will be in violation of federal laws. And Steve felt he had no choice but to back off. And at the end, all he can say, there's a lot more to this story than the media knows at this point. And this mystery has remained and it hovers over this entire tragedy. And Steve, I believe, rather courageously, is trying to get to the bottom of things. Can you tell us anything more about who this potential witness may be? The potential witness is a real mystery. The only time it's been mentioned is to the grand jury. The grand jury sessions are sealed. The fact that it's not a rumor is substantiated by Shannon Gray, Steve's lawyer, receiving a letter from federal authorities telling him to back off. If it's so important that he has to back off, one has to wonder what it is. And it's just another mystery in a case that's filled with mysteries. I mean, the major question for all these months is coming up to a year since these murders occurred. And still, we really don't have a handle. We being anyone, even the authorities, it seems, have a handle on why. Why did these killings take place? Were they aimed at one of the victims? Were they aimed at just the house? Was it just happenstance? This is an answer that any curious individual that reporters want to get to the bottom of for a family who lost a child. It's an issue of supernal consequence. So, Howard, I mean, obviously, every prosecution wants to keep things close to the vest in order to keep the defense from knowing everything. But and I can understand a father's determination to find the answers. Is there any world where he's going to compromise the prosecution's ability to win this case by putting information out there that they might want not out there? I think as a reporter that gag orders, especially such a prohibitive one has in this case, are detrimental to the truth coming out. And I think that Steve taking this on his own and going out trying to get to the bottom of the things, he's performing the sort of function that reporters usually do. And I think in this 
sort of judicial darkness. The truth is buried and rumors just profligate. And I think there have been enough rumors on this case. That's one of the things when Steve begins his investigation, he's gets so many leads. He gets a lead from a man in prison, a convict, and it seems quite promising. Convict makes an elaborate but very believable story, and Steve spends several months working with a private detective going down this rabbit hole trying to get to the bottom of things. At the end, he realizes it's phony, so he keeps on going. He also receives videos, and these videos allege that there were different cars in the area or different people. Sounds have been superimposed on the King Road house at night, and these videos are allegedly taken from light bulb cameras, CCTV surveillance, and these are very elaborate fraud. And the idea that there are people out there who are taking the time and energy to create these doctored videos is surprising and, and, and horrid. And again, it's also reason why this gag order is detrimental to getting at the truth and why Steve's quest is something I think to be admired and applauded. I feel filled with respect for a father who refuses to surrender to the horrible events of his daughter's death. Last question, Howard. October 2nd has come and gone. That was originally the date the trial was supposed to start. It's been postponed. Any sense of when this trial may begin, what we're looking at? It's a question that people who are covering the case ask every day. And that, again, is exemplary of the vacuum of information that exists on this case. Is the trial going to be postponed for six months or a year or even two years? Steve Gonclavis believes it could perhaps be as long as two years. And that means he and his family are going to be living in this nether state for at least two more years, not knowing why their daughter was murdered. I think the fact that the prosecution and the defense have not publicly come out with a trial date, is very disturbing. Well, Howard, it's a brilliant piece of reporting and a heartbreaking story uh, this week. And I appreciate you making time to share your insights. So thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks for talking with me. Bye-bye. Michael, before we go off into the weekend, I'm sure you've got something, anything you can possibly recommend to us. I do. I've got a new show I'm kind of really into. Have you heard of Drops of God? No, tell me about it. Okay. It came out a few months ago on Apple TV+. Plus. I didn't see it, and someone pointed out to me recently, and it's pretty great. It's a new limited series, and it's set in the world of upmarket wine, high-end vintages, and anyway, it tells a story. It's based on a Japanese manga that came out about 10 years ago, and it's a story of a young woman living in Paris who gets a mysterious phone call from her father who's dying in Tokyo and he says, please come. He sends her a ticket. She comes, but before she can get there, he dies and she then goes to the reading of the will the next day and you find out that she's long estranged from him. He's got the world's most valuable multi-million gazillion dollar collection of wine and there's another guy sitting there who was her father's great pupil in terms of studying wine. In the terms of the will, he says, whoever can win these sets of challenges I'm going to give out to you inherits the whole estate and the money. So, it's pretty great. At times, it reminds me almost of Queen's Gambit with this woman trying to sort of figure things out. But it's pretty great. It's on Apple TV+. Plus. It's called Drops of God. And you're going to probably want to watch it with a good bottle of wine. That's what I'm going to say. And you, my dear, what do you have? 
Well, I've been reading this really wonderful new book. It's called The Marriage Question, George Eliot's Double Life. And it came out in the U.S. over the summer. It's a biography of sorts. It's written by Claire Carlisle and published by FSG. So the book opens on what you could call the first day of George Eliot's rest of her life, the day that she decides not to marry the man she loved and instead live a life with him outside of the institution of marriage. But it's an incredibly well-written and really provocative book, really all about this partnership between Eliot, who was one of the greatest Victorian novelists and also the husband who was never officially her husband, but was in fact, in every sense of the word, her complete partner in life and love and letters and all sorts of things. Anyway, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. It's called The Marriage Question, George Eliot's Double Life by Claire Carlisle. I love it. We'll check it out. All right. Well, we wish you all a wonderful weekend. Thank you so much for joining us. Special thanks to our sponsor, Book of the Month, an incredible resource for all the good things to read. Michael, will you please read us out? With pleasure. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan. And our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Darius, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly, but we will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music, but most of all, thanks again for joining us.